Uh, so we are on kind of an odd story in the book of Acts. But before we get there, I want to talk about what leads up to that. Uh, I had a friend, uh, this is when I was in high school, who was really, really into and looking, at, looking forward to seeing this new movie coming out that he was trying to get us excited about. It was hard, hard to do, though, because it just sounded like the dumbest movie. It had a dumb title. It was a science fiction movie. It was this thing called Star Wars. And he was telling us, you know, this movie's coming out. You guys are going to love it. Like, I don't think so. But okay, whatever. Well, it opened up Wednesday around the country. And uh, by Friday, it had gone, to use a movie term, boffo. And uh, it was just this huge thing, and it became a huge story. The news was covering it. And so he comes in Friday. We thought he'd be elated, but instead he's kind of bummed. He said, well, I can't go see Star Wars now. So why? He said, because everybody's seeing it. If I go see it now, people are going to think I'm seeing it just because I'm following a trend. I'm doing it because everybody's doing it. I can't do that because I live my whole life not to be affected by the masses. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not going to see a movie that you want to see because the masses went to see it because you don't want people to think that you're affected by the masses. Are you not you know, catching the irony of this statement? He said, well, that doesn't matter because nobody else knows that. And I said, well, I know. He said, yeah, but you don't count because you know I'm not affected by the masses. <laughs> but you're not seeing the movie you want to see because of the masses. It was one of those things that's kind of an infuriating moment in my, 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 my you know, because when you're teens, you think like that. Like everything seems to make sense. Everything's black and white. And um, so it just goes to show how hard it is sometimes not to be affected by the people around you and by the community around you. And you don't want to be, but you find yourself kind of falling lockstep in even a, some of the most bizarre, <laughs> bizarre ways. This was kind of parodied very well by the troop Monty Python. I've got one or two things to say. Yes, yes, one of them. Look, you've got it all wrong. You don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anybody. They're pretty good at irony, those Brits, right? So sometimes you, you don't want to be influenced, but you find yourself influenced, and we're taught not to. In fact, our parents apparently all have the same book, and if you wanted to do something when you're younger, and they asked you if all of your friends wanted to jump off the bridge, would you? My, my wife's from Ukraine. Her father told her that. I mean, it's just like crazy. It's like internationally well-known par parental move. You know, they would all jump off a bridge and you'd follow. And, and so we're taught not to do it. And so it's kind of natural, I think, for a preacher to sit up here and talk bad on following this. But I'm going to take a totally different tack with you. I'm going to tell you that you probably should be following community because you are wired into your DNA to follow the community. And therefore, we have to be very, very careful about what community we're in. Okay, so uh, Stash, can you bring me back just a, just a little bit there? I sound like I'm getting ready to feedback. So some of this is rehashed to a lot of you, but I'm going to go back to Genesis 1, 26, 27. This is when we're brought into the story of creation. When I say we, I mean mankind. And so, um, so we, he brings us in in 126, 27. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Okay. So uh, let's talk about this. First of all, who's us? You know, when God says, let us make man in our image, who's he talking to? Now, this is day six. So he's already created the animals, but he's not talking to the animals. He's literally talking to himself but he's talking to the entire Trinity. Now we know that the entire Trinity is there. Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all present 
at creation. We know this because the Bible tells us. In fact, in Genesis 1, it tells us that things start out as kind of this void and the Spirit of God hovered above it. So that was the Holy Spirit. Well, God the Father is the one kind of doing things. So we see him, the creator. And then John comes in later on and tells us this. He says, well, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And then later will tell us the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. That's Jesus. So the Bible triangulates here and lets us know God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all present at creation. So when God says, let us, he's speaking to all of them. In fact, the word used here for those of you who like these things is Elohim. It's a, it's a Jewish word, a Hebrew word that actually means God's. And when it's used in this case, they have a capital E in it. Elohim means the gods, which means the Trinity. All the Trinity was there. So when Moses wrote the book of Genesis, he made it clear they're all there. So when they say, let us make man in our image, they're telling us some things about us. And there's only a couple things you can take from there. The Bible will fill in some other blanks later. But from there's only three things you can know about us. One is we were created to be part of God's family. We're created in the image of God, but we are not God. Right? We will never be God. God will always be greater than us because God has something about him that none of us have. The most defining characteristic of God, if anybody ever asks you this question, is this. He's uncreated. It's the one thing God is that none of us are. There's not a thing in the universe that is that. God doesn't have a beginning. We go from everlasting, but he goes from everlasting to everlasting. God has no beginning. He's uncreated. So does the Holy Spirit and so does Jesus Christ. They're all together in that. That's the only thing that God shares unique to them. So we can never be God, in case you wonder that. The devil can never beat God, in case you wonder that, because they're just another level. We are not his peer, we are his family. He creates us in his image. Those of you who are parents, you've had the joy of bringing children into this world. Sometimes they look just like the you know, father or the mother, and sometimes that's a good thing or a bad thing, but they look just like him. You can see yourself in them. They're in your image, right? Because they're part of your family. And so that's what, that's what they're saying in here. When he creates in his image, we become part of his family, not his peer, his family. We are not God, we are his family, right? The other thing we can tell is that we are born to be creative. We are created in the image of a creative God. And so we are born to be creative. And if we're not being creative, you're going to feel dissatisfied with life. Now, it takes many forms. It could be music or art. It, <coughs> excuse me, it could be gardening. It could be words. It could be a lot of different things, but we were created to create. And if we're not creating, we're, there's something in us that's just a little bit unsettled. And that's why we shouldn't be just sitting there plugging in our headset and listening to music and watching YouTube videos. We shouldn't just be consumers. We should be producers. We were created to create. That's number two. Number three is we're made to be part of a community because it tells us that male and female he created and then he tells them to go forth and multiply because we were supposed to have a community with our peers, that's other human beings. So we're created that way, we are wired to need it and that's why we have to be very, very careful about our community. We have to choose it carefully. Now I'm not talking about friends necessarily because you can have a community that aren't your friends and you can have friends that aren't part of that community. Community is where we kind of get our ideas of what is right and wrong and what we want to do. There's a community thing here that drives us. And the Bible warns us about this. In fact, um, he says this, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good character. 
if you have a community of people who do not love God, they're going to influence your ability to love God. That's just the way it is. Now, I'm not saying you can't go out in the world and you can't talk to people who are not. That's, that's, a, that's a misinterpretation of this. What I'm saying is, if these people have such input in your life that you find yourself changing your beliefs to fit in, they're corrupting you. They don't have the same idea about God that you do. And then there's another verse that's usually used in marital counseling, but that's not how Paul wrote it. There's a very famous, um, a very, very famous verse. Every marriage counselor uses it, but, God, but Paul's not talking about marriage here. He's talking about friends. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness. He's talking about your community, your friends, your people who are actually yoked to you in such a way that they're influencing what you believe. He said, we need to be careful about that because we will try to fit into communities. It's in your DNA. You can't help it. You will try to do that. Now, when we talk about communities, there are three different levels you can connect to on a community, uh, but usually it's the first one because it's the easiest. It's the physical. It's uh, shared characteristics. A lot of times we end up being friends with people who kind of look a lot like us. You know, they're maybe the same social stratosphere, maybe the same in income kind of stratosphere. Some of us may have had friends who were richer than us or poorer than us or uneducated or more educated. But we have a tendency to kind of end up in the same grouping of uh, people that, that we know and we're, and, and we're like. We have a tendency to do that. It also could be a shared interest. The biggest one around here probably is the black and gold. I mean, you know, if you live in Pittsburgh, you are a Steelers fan. Uh, or you don't fit in and you don't know why. You know, it's like you have to do that to be part of this community. But that's very physical. It's simply a characteristic. You can walk out on Sunday, go down to Giant Eagle, and watch everybody wearing their black and gold, and you know they're part of your community. But it's physical. It's not like you're friends with them. They're not really influencing you except possibly your, your clothing choice. But, but they're there. You, you have some level of community. It's much more important, by the way, when you live in Dallas, Texas, to have that community. I lived there for several years. I can tell you it's nice to be able to walk to a place you know you're going to see the black and gold and not the blue and the white. Uh, but, but it's still just a very physical, kind of superficial. It's the easiest kind of community to have. The books you read, the television series you follow, the movies that you like to watch. There's all kind of ways that we have these physical communities. You can even have virtual communities these days. You even have to meet them physically, but you can just talk to them online. Okay. The other thing, and when you go to a deeper level, is this emotional community. Now, most of communities, when you have shared experiences, now you can have one blend into the other. You know, I got to go to Super Bowl, uh, Super Bowl 43 in Florida. I walked there not knowing a soul, and I, you know, went to my seats, and I'm surrounded by my, you know, 30 or 40 closest friends suddenly, right? I mean, we're spilling beer on each other. We're, we're sharing food. We're, we're sharing blankets when it got cold, you know, we're sharing tears, you know, through the whole thing. It, it was emotional kind of a connection. Uh, and it seems like you connect at a very real level sometimes when you're mo mostly connecting community, but usually the shared experience is the connection. And when the shared experience leaves, the connection has a tendency to fall apart. Like I said, they were my closest friends for three whole hours. I haven't kept in touch with any of them since. You know, we, we, we exchanged email addresses. When Stas was deployed to Afghanistan, the army had this thing called a yellow ribbon community where all the families of loved ones who are in Afghanistan could come together because they had the shared experience at that time. You know, we kind of got to know these people, never had dinner with them or anything afterwards. Right now, I promise you, there's all kind of shared experiences going on in the Carolinas as people group together to fight back against what's happening. 
But here's the weird thing. When that shared experience ends, usually those friendships break up. Usually. Not always, but usually. And a lot of times people do it because they don't want to remember that experience too much and that friendship reminds them of that experience. And so we can have these emotional bonds. It's, it is a deeper connection than the physical, but it too will end, which is why we're trying to get to this idea of a spiritual connection. It's very difficult to get to because a spiritual connection really has less to do with how we feel about each other and more about how we feel with God. If your heart is after God and you're with a group of people whose heart is after God, you will quickly transcend all three of these levels. You'll connect physically, uh, you'll shake hands, you'll, you'll be in worship together, you'll, you'll lay hands to each other, you'll pray for each other, you'll, you'll connect, right? But you'll also connect emotionally. You'll get involved in things like praying for somebody who's sick and, and you'll, you'll get involved in things like helping out in the community of, of the church. So you'll get those shared experiences as well. But what's really driving is that your heart's going after God. And everybody else who's around you in that connection has the same heart for God. And if you don't have that heart for God, you will not be able to fit in. And unlike what that little cartoon was showing us where they, like, you know, all this, they're trying to get this, this, this praise for themselves. I don't think that's what it is. I think they really wanted to connect. We'll get to this, the, the story in Acts in just a second. I believe that they really wanted to connect with everybody. They just didn't know how. And they're only looking at it from a superficial level. Well, we're all here together. I have shared some of the things with the people, but I know I'm not connecting. And so what they saw was they saw this other guy connect, and they said, let's do what he did. But what they missed was it was his heart that connected him. So let me go now into Acts. Um, so just kind of take a quick look at where we were right before this story starts, the end of Acts 4. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. I told you before that the, the Old Testament, um, I mean, not the Old Testament, the King James version of this is they were all in one accord. I always wondered as a kid, how they fit in a Honda? I don't know. But they're all one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And one called Barnabas, that's this uh, Joseph that we had in a cartoon, but the disciples named him Barnabas, which means uh, son of encouragement. So he's one of these guys that just lifts people up. He comes by, hey, you're looking good today. Oh, you know, can I help you? It's just one of these people, just kind of, you love having them walk in. You've got a smile, just makes you feel better. That's who Barnabas was. And so he was from Cyprus, and then he had land there, and he realized, I'm not going home. I'm staying here. So he goes home just to sell it, and once he sold it, he brought it all back, and he laid it at the disciples' feet. Now, let me just let everybody kind of relax a little bit. The Christians did not turn into communists. Uh, there's this, like, you know, this feeling like, well, see, you know, this is the first commune. And uh, I think a couple things are going on here. First of all, I believe, I don't have any scripture to back this up, I believe they thought Jesus would be back any day now. I mean, let's face it. Jesus Christ died, was buried, went to hell and came back. It took him three days. And he was here for 40 days and he goes to heaven. They must have thought, well, if it only took him three days to get to hell and back, heaven and back will be a quick jaunt. You know, he'll be right back. He'll be here next month, the month after that. I don't think any of them realized that they would live their whole lives like this and not seeing Jesus return. And so I think to some degree, it was kind of easy to just wait. He left here. He said, he'd come back. we'll wait here for him here. I think that's part of what's going on here. It won't be till later they realized that when Jesus was saying, I'll be back soon, it was heaven soon, not our soon. So I think that's part of what's going on. The other thing is, they just really were, as I said, in one accord. They, they had one heart, one mind, one soul. And when you start serving God like that and you start seeing needs around you, you start taking care of them. Well, I have something, I'll give it to you. I don't need this. 
Some of that goes on in our communities to this day. Not as much surprise as it should, but, the, but they were really just, you know, I'm just, my heart's sold out to God, and, and I see a really dear friend of mine who I've connected with on, on all these levels, and I want to help them out. So much easier to help out some of you love, right? It's so much easier than, than strangers. They weren't strangers. They all had this shared experience. So that's part of what was going on here. But I also think that Barnabas knew some things because he listened to the teaching. And I'm going to show you a couple of scriptures that Jesus taught us about money. He said, uh, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay back every man according to his deeds. And so <laughs> Barnabas is listening to this and saying, well, I don't care about the money. What I care about is the kingdom of heaven. And so he's already kind of, kind of getting into, the, into this idea that I, I, I don't care about these things. I'm, I'm caring about my soul. I'm, I'm looking at the afterlife already. But then he probably also knew this that Jesus taught. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where the moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now I want you to catch something here that is oftentimes missed and that is Jesus does not say that where your heart is, your treasure follows. He says your heart follows your treasure. This is a really kind of key point. When people ask me, why do you preachers always talk about money so much? Uh, well, in my case, I just simply read what Jesus says, and he talks about money a lot. Because he knows that where your focus is, your faith follows. And he knows that where your treasure is, your heart follows. And God's always after your heart, you understand. He couldn't possibly care less about your treasure. There's a story about the guy who decides um, he's going to prove you can take it with him. And so right before he dies, because he's getting you know, kind of ill, he sells everything he has, and he has it converted into gold and turns into this big chunk of gold, like a brick, a gold, big gold brick. And he says, here's my instructions. I want you to put this in a satchel, and I want you to wrist, you know, cuff it to me with a, with a handcuff, and I want to be buried with it so I can take it to heaven. I want to show I can do it. So they did. They buried him with his satchel, with his gold, and handcuffed it to his wrist, and he dies. And sure enough, he, you know, finds himself walking to heaven with this thing attached to him. He gets to the gates, and Peter looks at him and says, what's that attached to your wrist? He says, if it's okay with you, I'd like to bring this in with me. He says, well, I don't know if it's okay with me. I don't know what's in your case. He says, well, it's really important to me. I just kind of want to show I could do it. He says, well, Peter says, maybe we can let you in. Open up the case. Let me see what you have. So open up the case, show him this gold. And Peter said, you, bought out, you brought asphalt? I don't, I don't understand. Why'd you bring that? You know, because <laughs> the streets are paved with gold. Okay, guys. Um, so anyway, but, but the, the point is, you know, it's, it's like if, if, if that's where your treasure is, if where, where, where's your treasure? And, and so um, anyway, so that I think is what Barnabas knew. And, and, he, and he, he listened to the disciples tell him about Jesus. He may have been there when Jesus spoke those words. But Jesus goes on and he says, look, the eye is a lamp of your body. So if your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's basically saying, what are you focused on? Your eye is focused on something. What are you focused on? If it's focused on light, light fills your whole body. If it's focused on darkness, which to Jesus was anything except heaven, 
then you are not following that. Your focus reveals your faith. Your focus is what reveals your faith. What are you focused on? Look, if, if you tell people you're a Christian and they seem surprised because your focus isn't on anything Christian, maybe you need to reevaluate what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is saying your focus shows your faith. It's not the other way around. And then he finally finishes up by saying this, look, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This gets translated a lot of times as money, but it's more than that. Mammon was the God of the world. He's basically saying you have two choices. You serve heaven, you serve this world. Choose. And our problem is we try to compromise that. Because we'll look at what's happening around us and we'll compare our lives and we say, God, I don't mean to complain, but I was on Facebook today and they seem to be living better lives than I do and I don't get it. How am I living this righteous life and I go on Facebook and I see them all kind of living it up a little bit. Now, I'm not saying I need their car. I'm not saying that I need their house, but, and no matter what you're going to fill the blank in, it's still the earth. God's saying, look, are you focused on me or are you focused on the earth? And it really doesn't matter what that but says. What God's saying is, you are despising me. If you're rejecting heaven, you're despising me. And that's how it is. You only have one heart. It can only be in one place. Is your heart with me or is it with this world? Now, I don't know about you. But I've often thought, being a good American, it would be a lot easier to do good things for the heaven if I were a little bit richer. <laughs> you know, kind of that song, if I were a rich man, those of you who know it from Fiddler on the Roof, if I were a little bit more wealthy, I could do so much for the kingdom of heaven. So God, I don't know. I think that maybe we can come to some kind of an agreement here. I don't need to be rich, 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 rich. You know, I don't need to be you know, Bill Gates rich. But if I were a little bit better off, I could do so much more for the church and so much more for the kingdom. And he's basically saying, no, you cannot do that because anytime you take your focus off of heaven on what you think would matter and what you think you should be gathering up, then what's happening is you've taken your focus off me. You can't mix those things. He said, I don't need your money. In Galatians 6, Paul puts it this way, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. The one who sows the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Your, the seed you plant will always determine the crop you bear. That seems so simple and so obvious, but I'm going to say it again. The seed you plant will determine the crop you bear. What seed are you planting? Where's your energy? Where's your focus? Where is your heart? That's what Barnabas had. Barnabas' heart was with the Lord. He said, I got this land. I could sell it and help more people out. I'll go do that. He didn't do it because he wanted anybody to make a big deal of it. He wasn't trying to get his you know, face published in the, you know, the Acts public journal or something. I, he was just saying, look, I can help. I can see a way I can help the kingdom. I'm going to go sell this. And it may have been a fortune. It may have been not very much. It doesn't matter. What happened was he gave everything he had and says, here, he didn't, he didn't go deal the needs. He went to disciples and said, you guys know better than I do what the need of this community is. Here, you decide. He put it at their feet. No strings attached. I don't need a wing named after me. I just want you to use this however it best works. 
because his heart was committed to heaven. And now we get to Ananias. So we see his wife and he and Sapphira, they have a piece of property as well. It's kind of closer. So it may have been worth more than that property in, in, in Cyrus. And so they sold it and they kept back some of it for themselves. I think this shows where their heart is, right? And I think this shows the same kind of heart that so many Christians have today. I want to help you, God, but I'm going to keep some of me back. I want to give you my heart, but I'm going to keep this part of my heart back. I'm not going to give it all. I'm going to keep some of it for me. But I'll give you most of it. And so he came, and this may have been, by the way, a lot of money. And I don't know. I, wish, I almost kind of wish that the Luke would have told us the amounts. Because I have a hunch that the amount of money they actually dropped at the disciples' feet was greater than the amount of money Barnabas dropped at his feet. I have a hunch. Because they thought they could get away with it. That's why I think that. They're going to come in as, well, Barnabas gave this much. We'll give that much and a little more, right? and still hold some of it back. I, I just really believe that that's what it was because they thought they were going to get away with this. So it makes it clear that the wife and he both talked about this, but they both got it. They brought a portion of it, laid it at the apostles' feet, just like Barnabas did, doing the same thing. They want to connect now with the community at a spiritual level, but this isn't how it works. What works is the heart connects. And God may have not told them to sell the property at all. God may have told them, sell the property and you go distribute it. But the heart wasn't in it. Right? They saw something they could do, which they'd seen somebody else do. So many times we try to repeat what other Christians are doing, thinking that's going to work for us. We need to just turn our heart to God and let the Holy Spirit tell us what to do. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Now I want you to watch what Peter says to him, because it's very interesting. He says, look, when it remained unsold, it was yours. God didn't put anything on you. He, didn't make, he did not make a claim on your land. When it was not so, it was yours. You could do whatever you want with it, he's saying. God didn't tell you to do that. It was yours. Do whatever you want with it. And even after it was sold, it was still under your control. You have that money. You sold the land, you have the money. God's not involved at this point now. He's still, he's still watching what you're doing. Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You've lied not to men, but to God. See, if he would have come and said, I sold my field, it was worth much more than Barnabas's, and I'm giving you half. That's not a lie. Peter would have accepted that with joy, right? But what he did was, he's lying. He's trying to portray his heart is the same as Barnabas's. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, when we started the Fruits of the Spirit sermon series, we started with this really weird story about Jesus Christ walking up to a fig tree, finding no figs, and cursing it, and the tree died. The whole sermon's online. I'm not going to go through it all now. But the fig tree, the thing about the fig tree is that it develops these dark green leaves when it has fruit. And the Bible specifically says they saw it with leaf, which means they could tell that it was leafing as though it had fruit. And when Jesus walked up to the fig tree, he found no fruit. Not unripe fruit. He found no fruit which means this tree was a fraud. It was portraying that it had fruit when it had nothing. And Jesus cursed it. This is exactly what's happening now. It's almost like prophetic. Because Ananias is coming in and he's proclaiming that he has this fruit of generosity. And he's like, his heart's for God, like Barnabas is, but it's not. It's on the things of this world because he's still keeping some of it back that he's going to use for something else. 
His heart is not turned to God, but he's pretending that it is. Jesus cursed the fig tree. The Holy Spirit curses Ananias. And as soon as Peter says these words, Ananias falls down and breathes his last. And a great fear came over all who heard it. Yeah, no kidding. I'll tell you what. If God would do a little more of that in today's church, <laughs> we'd probably have a lot more healthy fear of the Lord. But the amount didn't matter. What mattered was he has he had an uncommitted heart. God says, I need you to commit to me. You can't serve two masters. What he's saying with that and with what happened to Ananias is you're despising me. You brought in a portion and said that it wasn't. You're despising me. You're not trusting me at all. You're just giving it to get other people saying, oh, what a great guy. So he's saying, I need your heart here. It's not here. I can't use you. Now, uh, what I find interesting is what happens next. The young men got up, covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. This is the bane of being a young man in a church. <laughs> Something heavy needs moved. Hey, guys, could you go get the body and take it outside and bury it? I don't know if anybody's had the privilege of carrying somebody who is passed out, like completely passed out. That's a heavy load. I mean, I'm not telling you how I know that. Uh, it wasn't dead body. I'll just say that. But I've, I've carried um, somebody who was as though dead. And that's a heavy, heavy, heavy load. It's like it shifts. It's very difficult. I don't know how many young men they had. But so they get up. You know, could you guys carry the body out and bury them? So these, these young men get up and carry it out. I feel sorry for them, though, because just when they get finished is when the wife comes in, right? So and about three hours pass. And his wife comes and she has no idea what happened to her husband. She's looking around. He's not there. You know, maybe he's getting fitted for a new jacket. You know, everybody's going to laud him. And Peter says, tell me whether you sold the land for this price. Again, they're not telling us how much it is. Yeah, you sold the land. Is this what you got for it? He says, yeah, that, that's right. That's right. And Peter says, why is it that you've agreed with your husband to try to test the Holy Spirit? You don't think the Holy Spirit knows the truth? Because the Spirit is present. And so behold... The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out as well. These poor guys walk in and watch her fall down. Ah, oh, you know, I was going to get a drink. I, we told you we should stop for a drink on the way in. I need water. Um, so now they have to carry her out and bury her. I felt sorry for these guys, you know, the unofficial pallbearers of the early church. But um, so immediately uh, she falls dead, breathes her last, and they carry her out and bury her beside the husband. Here's the thing that was stri striking me, though. In today's church, Ananias would be considered a great Christian. If we had somebody come to this church who sold their home and gave half of it to the church, we'd make a big deal of it. We would. In fact, people have done less and gotten things named after them in some churches. We don't do the naming things, but you know, some churches do. You get a hall named after them. You get some kind of plaque. We, we laud it. We don't care about the heart. We care about the money. I think a lot of problems in the church today is that his heart isn't committed to God, right? And, and so we have to understand that what we want to be is a heart tuned to God. This is what the whole book of Acts is about. The reason they're able to do everything they're doing in the book of Acts is because they were sold out, they were committed. Peter's like, you can't do this and not be committed. This is about becoming committed to the Lord. Are you sold out? Are you committed? Are you fully committed to the Lord? Because we keep praying for help from God without having committed to the Lord. By what right are you asking? God, if you could help me this, you know, I'll just get on with my life and not bother you again for 10 more years. I promise. You just help me out this time. I haven't bothered you the last 10 years. Help me out. I won't bother you for 10 more. That's not what God wants. 
God wants a heart that's committed to him. In fact, the Bible tells us he's looking for that heart. Second Chronicles 16 says this, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the entire earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. That's what he wants. He doesn't care about the money. He doesn't care about what you say, how you dress. He doesn't care about any of that. What he wants is a heart that's sold out to him. Are you really committed to him? Are you holding back part? Some of your heart kind of held back a little bit. God, I, I sort of want to commit to you, but I'm holding back. I, I can't give you all my heart. I'll give you some of my heart. He said, that just despises me. Because if you really trusted me, and if you really appreciate what I've done for you, then you would give me your whole heart. You wouldn't hold back. And if you would do that, I will strongly support you. I'm looking for people, he says. I'm looking through the whole earth for people, which, by the way, indicates he's not finding many, whose heart is completely sold out to me, that I can strongly support. I'm looking for that. Are you that person? Are you one to say, God, I don't know what this means exactly, but I'm putting my whole heart in your hands. I am fully committed. Use me however you want because I'm committed to you. Can you be that person? Because that's the person that God's looking for. Would you all please pray with me?